And so I think in some respects, the shift that we're seeing globally is one that is beginning to prize the knowledges that were in many very real ways buried, erased, forgotten, and inferiorized. Hello and welcome to Daring Greatly podcast. I am Tepa Manche. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with us. Anti-apartheid activist Steve Biko writes, Black consciousness is an attitude of the mind and a way of life. The most positive call to emanate from the Black world in a long time. Its essence is the realization by the Black man of the need to rally together with his brothers around the cause of their oppression, the Blackness of their skin and to operate as a group to rid themselves of the shackles that bind them to perpetual servitude. As young people coming into positions of influence and leadership, be it in politics, commercial spaces, or as parents to a new generation, we are now in the position to reconstruct the African narrative, one which has been for a long time constructed for us by oppressive forces. I believe it is time we take responsibility for the African consciousness. In this episode, I'll be talking about what this reconstruction could look like and how we could go about it. To have this conversation with me is academic, writer, and PhD candidate at the University of Pretoria, also a former editor-in-chief of the Journal of Decolonizing Disciplines, Seseko Kumalo. Hello, Kumalo. <laughs> Hi, Tepo. How are you doing? I'm so good. How are you feeling? I'm alive. I'm well. I am excited to be here and I would really like to send a shout out and thanks for the invitation. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited to have you. I'm so excited for this conversation. Thank you for sharing the space with me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Before we get into the nitty gritty of things, um, I want to congratulate you on your recent publication. You were the editor on a project called Decolonization as Democratization, Global Insights into the South African Experience. Tell me yeah. about that book. What inspired it? What uh, is it about? Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for the congratulatory words as well. So that book really started out in 2017 when I was still at Rhodes University, um, reading for my honors in politics and philosophy. And for the Grad Day event, and for those who don't know what Grad Day is, basically the full department at Rhodes usually organizes a day where most of the postgraduates come together and sort of discuss their research and where they are. It's usually towards the end of the year, possibly September, if not October of the year. For the Grad Day event, we had uh, Professor Veli Matova, Vedislava Matova of the University of Johannesburg, who was the keynote, um, who basically gave the keynote and she gave a really cool paper and the paper is cited in the acknowledgements of the book where she was really saying to us we've got to think quite systematically about our epistemic practices and I thought to myself well isn't this interesting and how do we actually think about the ways in which we arrange knowledge in the university space specifically knowledge in a university that is located on the African continent knowledge that responds to African problems. And so I started thinking about the book, tinkering about the book. I moved up to the University of Pretoria in 2018 and I put a call together and I sent it out to a couple of colleagues. Well, I sent it out internationally, actually. 
Um, and a couple of colleagues sort of responded quite keenly. Professor Velislava Matova um, actually does the sort of opening chapter in the book, chapter two, because chapter one is my own introductory essay, a substantive chapter. And she basically comes, and her chapter is titled How to Decolonize Knowledge Without Too Much Relativism. So the book really sort of was inspired by her at Rhodes University through her keynote address. And then of course, uh, we collaborated with a, very, with a series of other scholars as well. Um, the book is uh, forwarded by Professor Walter Mignolo of uh, Duke University. And we have our own Professor Spamandla Zondi of the University of Johannesburg, who sort of gives us the afterward to the book. In total, it's got 10 substantive chapters, the forward and the afterward, both of which, of course, are also quite substantive essays as well. And I really am quite proud of it because I was the youngest person on that project, yes. uh, conceptualizing it at the age of, I think, about 23 or 24. Um, yeah, 23, conceptualize it, 23, put it together, 24, 25. We're getting it out this year and I'm 26. And I was the only person on that project who doesn't yet have a PhD, I'm currently working on it, of course. Um, but I was just, I was very, very proud of it. And there's some people in there as well who I have looked up to for most of my own emergent career in academia. And, and I just, I quite like the way that those people that, I was, that I've managed to bring together think, and I enjoy the contributions that they make as well in the book. And I think it really holds well, and, it, and it's a very, very cool collection. Yeah, yeah. That is beautiful. Kamalo, you inspire me. Wow. I want to set the scene for the conversation that we're having and how I understand it. So I am born in the year 1995. In South Africa, we got political freedom in 1994. So the generation that is born the year after in 1994 and going from there is then branded or labeled as the born free in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And we are, we are raised with this narrative of the world being our oyster, we can, we can attain anything we dream of because Black people are now free. We walk free in Africa. As mm -hmm. we are growing up, this is the narrative that is fed to us. But then when I come into adulthood and I am exposed to systems within this country, I start mm -hmm. to realize that I do not walk as freely as I was told. In terms of institutional culture mostly is where I find that I experienced it a lot. You know, you go to university and then you find that this is a historically white institution. And then you find that systems within that institution do not really benefit or are not set up to benefit or help people of color, people from underprivileged backgrounds, people who were previously oppressed, right? Mm -hmm. And this is kind of where I get my rude awakening that, okay, we got quote-unquote political freedom, but there are a lot of other freedoms that we never got. What I realized is that colonial structures still exist, and that is when I got introduced to the decolonial conversation. So let's take it back to like the basics of it all. What are we talking about when we're talking about decolonization? So, and this is a very interesting question that you've just posed to me now because I've just finished uh, writing a paper that responds to how some people have said, and these are very well-respected scholars here in South Africa, who have said that we don't know what we mean when we're talking about decolonization. And I'm not going to mince my words, I believe that that is a nonsensical claim. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and why do I say I believe it's a nonsensical claim? So I'm going to direct you to two texts, right? And and Seppo, you know me. I I am I am an academic, and I I list citations like nobody's business. So you do. So I'm, I'm ready. Me. I'm ready for all the name dropping. <laughs> <laughs> so forgive me. Forgive me if if there's a if there's a tad bit sort of too academic kind of spin on the on on today's conversation. But go back to Edwin Etiebo's um, African philosophy um, or decolonization, African philosophy and the curriculum or something like that, that book that he did with Routledge in 2018, which actually, to be honest with you, I don't quite understand what was the reasoning behind that book because there wasn't anything new. He just looked through the SAJP, South African Journal of Philosophy, collated a couple of papers, put them together and said, yeah, I've got a book. And I'm like, Actually, maybe not, but anyway, in the first chapter of that book, Edwin says, Professor Edwin Etiebo, who's currently also the HOD of philosophy at at Wits University, uh, he says that what decolonization means is still unclear. And I'm like, you're talking absolute hogwash. Aretha Peary recently did African philosophical and literary possibilities with Roman Little, uh, Roman Littlefield, sorry. Um, and she does that book, and she also says in her introductory chapter that we still are not yet clear what Africanization or decolonization of the curriculum entails. And I'm like, that's nonsensical. Now, why do I say it's nonsensical? If we go back to the thinking and the work of folk who were developing their scholarship, their thought, and were responding to colonial incursion as far back as the 1790s, right? So I'm thinking here specifically of the likes of Unzigana, Unzigana who died in 1821, by the way, um, out in the Eastern Cape. Uh, I'm thinking of Unzigana, and, and those are people who, number one, foresaw that there was a change of their worlds. Number two, were resisting the change of that world due to colonial imposition. Now, to answer the question as to what do we mean by decolonization, those of us who have systematically engaged and contributed to the conversation ask three things or consider three, three things. Okay. The social condition of Black life, the political condition of Black life, and the cultural condition of Black life in this country. Right? So, And we've seen consistently that many and all of us have said that these three things need to be dictated by blackness. You mentioned the question of institutional culture at universities. What we tend to have is that we can, we tend to be told that as black folk, this is how your political condition ought to be. This is how your social condition ought to be. And we then even have people who claim to be experts on our own cultures, white folk, telling us that this is what black culture is, right? And that's what we're resisting. We're resisting, and this is the reason why as well the book is titled decolonization as democratization, it means an opening up of the space, which is to say we've got to have different voices contributing to the conversation and voices necessarily that are informed by experiential knowledge. I'll stop there because I can go on and on. But that's what we're (laughs) really talking about. We're talking about (laughs) exactly we're talking about black folk being able to speak for themselves about their social condition, their political condition, as well as the cultural conditions under which they exist. Yeah. Yeah. You see, I, I like how you you bro, you have broken it down between social, political, and cultural. That makes sense to me. Because what happened 
um, is when the colonizers arrived, these were the aspects of our life that they were able to take full control of. And we then got to define our existence through their definition of what our social life, political life and cultural life meant for us as black people, which then filtered down through our whole existence. And now that that is reflected through the, all the systems that we now exist in. That's what she's saying. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, you know, um, because in many respects, you know, think back to, and, and I'm going to, personally, I'm very fascinated by what was happening in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, sorry, late 18th, moving into the 19th as well as the 20th century. So your 1780s, moving into the 1800s, all the way into the 1900s. Mm -hmm. And what we see there, I'm going to give you two cats, and I'm going to actually um, quote for you um, sort of a passage here that um, in many respects, Diosoga writes to his kids. Now, of course, I'm certain that some of us might be aware that Diosoga was actually married to a Scottish woman um, who then of course gives him a set of wonderful kids, um, colored folk, colored kids, right? And Diosoga basically says in many respects that there, there, are certain, there are certain things that his kids in his last letters to his children, and these were of course letters that were penned quite late in terms of the 1800s. So 1877, we have Chalmers kind of transcribing this because he was uh, Diosoga's biographer. He says, I want you for your own future comfort to be very careful on this point. Now he's addressing his children. Mm. You will ever cherish the memory of your mother as that of an upright, conscientious, thrifty Christian Scotch woman. You will ever be thankful for your connection by this tie to the white race. But if you wish to gain credit for yourselves, if you do not wish to feel the taunt of men, which you sometimes may be made to feel, take your place in the world as colored uh, and not as white men, as Kaffirs, not as Englishmen, right? So the, 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 it's, it's a very historic thing, this thing, right? This kind of divide as we have it in the sense that even as early as the 1870s already, and we see William Wellington Coppa's work as well, considering similar kinds of questions, uh, when he assumes the editorship of Isikiti Misamakosa in 1884, uh, we see this kind of tussling precisely with the ability to be able to define these three conditions, political, social, and cultural in many respects which to this very day have influenced the ways in which we think to the extent that, and here's another example, and this I think is by far the best, although it is contested, of course, whether Zakes wrote the book himself or not. Anyway, that's a conversation for another day. Controversial. But Zakes and Dan, <laughs> but Zakes and Dan's heart, Zakes and Dan's heart of redness really gives us in very interesting and very cool ways, insights quite significantly into these rifts between what we can understand and Gopa as well takes this up in his poetry between the Christian identity, which comes with all of these, with all of these acquiescence that, that were required of black folk in the country. And then you have the heathens on the other hand, the heathens who in many respects became known now, and I must make a distinction here in terms of how I use the concept of, and how the concept of Kaffir was used in fact even by the likes of Dio Soka, William Wellington Gopa, 
and the likes of Onsikana, right? So there's kafa with one F and there's kafa with a double F, okay? The one with the double F on the other hand is the one that gets sort of, I suppose, synonymously associated with witchcraft, inferiority, as blackness, as something other, as something dirty, as something problematic. Whereas the kafa with one F, Diosoka himself, as I, as I read it to you, as I read his letters to his children to you, he says, take your place in this world as Kafirs and not as Englishmen, right? So, so this debate is a very old debate in this country. And it surprises me in many respects that we would, we would still have people today who say, we don't know what decolonization means, which is why for me, I'm saying it's nonsensical. That's a nonsensical thing to say because there's been a resistance that's been mounted since your 1798s, for crying out loud, by the likes of Nzigana, since 1798, moving all, and we're in what, 2021 nowadays? So there's, I think there's a distortion, and I'm curious as to know what that distortion plays into, who does it benefit, and why does that distortion continue to be played out in the ways it is, yeah. So put simply, it is the realization, appreciation, acknowledgement of blackness in all its aspects and the celebration of that within the spaces that we live in. Is that correct? Absolutely. When we talk about decolonization, what is the role of white people in this founding definition of decolonization? Well, what does whiteness mean in all of this? I ask because it always tends to feel like an isolating conversation. Like even, even my peers in the academic space they, there's a bit of a discomfort when we're talking about decolonization, even with white academics. Um, so you can only imagine the everyday white person when they are engaging in such a conversation. So I, I want to know from, from you, what do you feel like you would say the role of a white person is or something that white people need to fundamentally understand about decolonization? What would that be? And, and I, I'll, try to be, I'll try to be as brief as possible on this one because I think it's very complicated. Um, I think, especially in South Africa, especially in South Africa, because of how our history has played itself out, whiteness has always felt the need to educate and remind blackness of its place, right? Um, and, 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 and personally, if I'm being really, really honest with you, in as much as we have white allyship and white allies in the decolonial conversation, I am very suspicious. I am very, very suspicious uh, because, because number one, right now we're having this conversation in English, right now, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and yet your mother tongue is Susutu, my mother tongue is Susutu. Mm -hmm. Right. There was a time in this country where irrespective of those quote unquote linguistic differences, we would be holding this particular conversation quite necessarily in those languages and be able to hear each other irrespective of quote unquote the linguistic differences. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just think for me, even this, the very that, that very simple observation of the fact that we're having this conversation in English. There's a, there's a certain level of obfuscation that happens. Of what? I think of obfuscation, right? What so muddying mean? the waters, muddying uh, the waters, as it were. Um, 
sort of building obstacles possibly when whiteness comes into the conversation mm. as part and parcel of, I think, you remember what happened at Rhodes University during the rape culture protests, are you reference lists? Remember how the men were told to shut up, sit and listen? Mm -hmm. I think that the decolonial conversation, if it is going to be accommodative of white folk, and if white folk want to be in part and, par part and parcel of the conversation, I think it's necessary and useful for them to come to the conversation with a certain sense of epistemic humility, mm. right? Not, not ready to educate us, not ready to tell us where we're wrong, not ready to feel a certain sense of guilt as well, because really, as you said, Seppo, we were born in 1995. The white folk, the white people that we know today, our friends, the people that we really, really love and appreciate and who make up part and parcel of our lives, they were not there when Favut signed apartheid into the law. They did not give him the pen to do that work. So why feel guilty, right? Why feel as though it's personal? Why personalize the debate? And I think the reason why folk tend to personalize the debate is because we don't want to acknowledge how we continue to benefit from the oppression of millions and millions of people in this country. I hear you. So I'm just gonna leave it there, which is to say in many respects, if people wanna really get involved, and I do think there is a place for whiteness in this conversation because where do white people go? They, will, they, they, don't, they don't have, or some tend to have European passports, <laughs> but, um, you know, there, there's, there's a very real sense of a lot of white people feel that South Africa is home and it should feel that way indeed. You know, we're not calling for a mass expulsion. We're calling for coevals. We're calling for the respect of black ontology. Don't tell me that I'm going to now teach you decolonization when you cannot even speak my language. Don't correct me on my existential experience when you cannot even begin to understand what it means to walk in the shoes of a black man or a black woman in this country. Listen instead and possibly from the, and don't listen with the intent of giving a response, listen with the intent of hearing the conversation is what I would suggest. So there is a place, a place that says white people ought to come to the debate, yes, but to listen, that is useful allyship in my suggestion. I don't. To listen, to listen. I hear you. And I think I agree with that too. I think that most of the narrative has been one-sided and has been controlled by the white experience. For many years across the world, white people have had the opportunity, taken the privilege for themselves to design structures, to, dis to design education systems, to design criminal systems, to design everything that the human humans exist within right now can be linked to a white person constructing it or white cultures constructing it. And now that we are at a place where we are allowing space for more narratives to be presented within this space, the role that white people play is still, is still quite an active role. And I think that's where a lot of people find discomfort. They find that keeping quiet and listening is a submissive role, but listening is actually the most active thing you can do because it takes a lot to really suspend your own beliefs or understandings and even more than suspending them, interrogating them, you know, and you do that through the act of listening. And I think that for people, listen, for people listening to us speak right now who are of Caucasian descent, if you will, 
think of that role as a, such as an active role, as of such an important role to play, which is to listen and to listen with empathy and compassion. And from there, you take direction on what action to take. Because the person you have in the conversation with about their own blackness, their own experience, will then tell you what then action you can take. And then you can go back into your own white space and take the action required, having listened. I hear you. And, and I think just, just you know, to, to sort of round it off, but I think that's quite, it's, it's quite important. We know what our experiences are like. We know what it, we know and what we black know. <laughs> actually, actually, you know, um, and 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 I also think it's important for us as well to 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 note something that I think is quite profound. When we're talking about blackness, <clears throat> we ought to be careful not to homogenize the experiences. There are those of us who come from the rural outbacks of KwaZulu Natal whose experiences are very, very different, for instance, from somebody who comes from Soweto here in Gaudeng. From um, someone who grew up in Velkom, which is predominantly Afrikaans, and you have to experience blackness exactly. in that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, um, you know I, I think I always, with one of, I, I, I do listen to the podcast, of course, and, and you had Undogo Zombogazi at some point in time on the podcast, a very dear friend of mine. And we've been having this conversation for quite a while, he and I. Um, in terms of the work that we're doing and our interests that we're pursuing. I grew up in a context where whiteness didn't matter to me. Mm. It didn't. Whiteness was not the center of my world because the rural outbacks of KZN are exactly, it's predominantly black. The worldview is absolutely Afrocentric. It's black. And it's just, there was a, and, and there was a very real naivete then for me walking into white spaces I was expecting the kind of environment that I came from in that context. And yet, for instance, somebody who grew up, a 26-year-old who grew up in Soweto, will definitely know certain things, right? Miriam Makeba's Kauleza, she says, and we didn't have those kinds of experiences, nor did our parents have those kinds of experiences for that matter. The kind of experience that Miriam Makeba recounts in Kauleza, where she says the children see police cars coming to raid their homes for one thing or another and they shout from the streets to say kauleza, which simply means hurry up mama and hide. Please don't let them catch you. We didn't have that experience in the rural outbacks of KZN. You know, we didn't. And so there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an incredible complexity and variance within blackness. And by the way, that is valid in and of itself. It, it's not going to be Zoe Wickham critiques the way in which South Africa pre-1994, specifically in 1990, attempted to fashion this homogenous, seamless, cultural, official culture outside of South Africa in terms of your, your Scotland's and your England's, et cetera, et cetera. And she says that it's problematic because it fails to take into account the permutations, the variance, the complexity that constitutes blackness which is what makes blackness so whole and so beautiful in so many beautiful ways, yeah. So now that we have kind of a hold on what this means, right? And the roles we ought to play in it somewhat. What is mm -hmm. the process? Where, where do we start? Have we started? And how do we participate in decolonization as black people? 
You know, there's a paper that was done by Kanyisilem um, Bongwa and Nomusama Kubo, where they talk about radical love as decolonial philosophy. I think we've been taught to hate ourselves as Black people. One of the greatest criti critics of apartheid South Africa, one of the formidable novelists of our time, well, not our time, 20th century, Alan Payton, we went to the same high school, Maritzburg College. College even has a hall that's named after him. Alan Payton writes, Cry the Beloved Country. And that's a very insidious, which is still taught to this very day across schools, which basically says to black children, hate yourselves. Why do I say that? When you read, what is it, the priests, when you read that, that his son's character, uh, Father Kumalo's character, um, I personally came to not only be completely apprehensive, but also I, I, when I read that book in the English format, I didn't quite like Ukumalo's son because his derelict, because in, well, derelict in the sense that he's, he's, he's not necessarily fulfilling the role that I understand him to be fulfilling, to have to, have to fulfill. He is problematic on so many levels. Um, and, 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 he, and, and, and the way that Peyton paints this city of Johannesburg, which Ukumalo comes to from Itopo, from Karasbrook and Guazul Nadal, it's, it's a very, it's a problematic space that depicts blackness in very, very, very unsettling ways. For me, as a 17 year old sitting in the classroom, reading that text in English, right? I come to read it in 2019, or was it 2020 now, I forget. Uh, 2019, I come to read it in Isizulu, in, um, what is it, in, um, in Isizulu, and I forget who the translator was, Umumalo's uh, translation, sorry, Smusiso Nyembeze's translation into Lafel Legakul. And I couldn't help myself, but I flung the book across the room when I read it in my mother tongue because I saw what Peyton was doing in terms of inspiring this very deep rooted sense of self hate mm. in black folk. And of course he's, he's, you know, you're gonna be told it's irony. You're gonna be told it's this, it's that and the other thing. And that's the problem with white liberals, by the way, they don't see the problems that they inspire through their liberalism. Mm. Okay. Mm. So I think, how do we get to, how do we get to participate? I think we need to unlearn the self-hate. And, See, and we've seen that already. It's very difficult to unlearn the self-hate, I find, when the way I authentically express, I've been told that is not it. You know, I sit in a classroom in high school and I am laughing with my friends at the back and the teacher says, Tepo, keep quiet. If you want to laugh like that, go to a Shabin. And then I internalize that I'm like, that was such an authentic expression of myself. And a white woman told me that how I get to be like that is only in a certain context, which is often toxic and um, often, you know, viewed as, as a very negative space in society, you know? And I'm like, okay, I guess that's where I get to express myself like that. When I'm like this, when I'm in these spaces, um, in academic spaces or however accepted spaces, I have to be a certain way. So my authentic self is not it. Another one is I grow my hair, you know, it becomes a little, an Afro. 
I am told you can't express yourself like that through your hair, cut it, make it short. I internalize that. I'm like, okay, how I naturally exist is not it. I have to then adjust myself to fit this context. So they are so, and those are just two examples, but there are millions of micro aggressions that come across in, in, in us internalizing or us rather internalizing those microaggressions as self-hate. And having grown up with all of that, now I exist like this thinking that my black expression is not it. How do we how do we how that? do we get past that? Mm. I think the first thing is to acknowledge that violence for what it was, violence. Right? Mm. So when in a classroom you're sitting precisely and you're laughing with your friends and you're told that that laughter is not necessarily a laughter that is permissible in this particular space. And also think about it, the idea of a shabib. That's where alcohol is. That's where in many instances, the problematic black men will attempt to find some, possibly a sex worker in that kind of space or whatever, you know, it's not, it's never associated with, it's never associated with the blackness we know, which is yeah. to say, when I'm at home, I laugh like that with my yes. friends, as you say. I don't, I don't laugh like that in Shabin. No, I laugh like that at home. Yeah. Um, it's to acknowledge those. It's to acknowledge those moments for what they were, which was violence, and to then ask the question. I think, of how do I deal with that violence? How do I rehabilitate myself? from that violence, right? And, and I think for me, in as much as we are reeling from those experiences of violence, there are very real ways in which we have begun reclaiming our blackness in very real ways. And how does that happen, you might ask me. I'm just gonna give you a simple example of the kinds of music that young people are producing nowadays, right? Young people, and I'm not saying that in a, in a mocking kind of tone or whatever, but think about the, okay, the music, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? <laughs> think about the music of, of the likes of Black Diamond and the, the artists that they are collaborating with across time and space. Think about the music of Makadz. Think about the music Show my of, what is it? Of that is Dana. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly, right? Like, like think about, it's 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 funky afro poppy it's it's but at the same time the message is very interesting to me because if we listen very carefully and they are taking from a tradition by the way that was established in the 20th century by the likes of Musim Shongo and Miriam Mageba mm. where the lyrical composition not only affirms blackness but levels a certain socio-political critique you see and i think it's important for us to acknowledge that affirmation that we find in our music, that affirmation that we find in modalities of existence of blackness that say we are who we are and we will not apologize for who we are, right? And I think it's important. And it's also, and just as a last point on this, it's also very necessary to say, as far back as the 17th, I mean, as far back as the 18th century already, Unzigana already says, he, he, he gives, sort of a, a thing called Nsigana's way, right? He outlines what Jeff Opland calls Nsigana's way. And what really is Nsigana's way? Nsigana's way basically is this idea of saying, we understand that our worlds 
as it has always been throughout time and history, our worlds will always intermix, intermesh. So there is no idea of an essentialist blackness that is removed from white contamination because we exist on an island. We will never, and we have never existed on an island. The reasons why we traded in gold, in beads, in spices is because different cultures came into contact with Africa. The reason why we created silk, the reason why, the reason why our cultures developed in the ways that they developed is because they were in contact with other cultures, right? But that contact ought not to be the focal point. We will borrow what we want from those cultures. We will take what serves us and leave the violence at the door. Do not allow it into our own houses, into our souls, into our bodies. And I think for me, that's where we begin because some folk will say, I can't, I cannot because I'm oscillating between the white world and the black world. Black child, you will oscillate between the white world and the black world, especially if you're born in the 1990s because actually our parents believed that the best option for us were, was to go to these white schools. It, it was to participate in white culture. Right? So we have those components and we cannot rid ourselves of those components of white culture. But it's necessary to say, I'm going to take the parts that nourish my soul and I'm going to feed my soul as well with black culture. And I'm going to give due respect to my blackness for what it is unapologetically. And I think that's how we integrate that violence as opposed to disassociating from it because disassociation causes a hell of a lot more problems, I would suggest. I hear you. I think for me, it's always been a story of belonging and in a society underpinned by Western structures and systems, it always felt like for me to belong, I had to assimilate to those Western structures. And I think I did, you know, before understanding that there was the decolonial conversation going on, I, I was that person trying to like, listen to how I speak. <laughs> and um, I was living in a context where I knew that for me to succeed, or I was told and believed at the time for me to succeed was for me to assimilate to Western structures. And then as I get older, and I think that I'm accepted by Western structures, what it meets when it sees me as my black skin before my intellect, which was developed by them, and before I express myself in a many other ways, which would, which would make me considered as the accepted black quote unquote, you know? And as I've come into my own being and come to appreciate my blackness even more, I have come to understand that it is about really, like you say, establishing who I am with all of these components that, that, is, that have influenced my being to this point. And I think that's the Absolutely. journey that I am on. And I, I continue to learn more about black culture on my own terms. I think that's what has been very important for me as well to determine what blackness means for me in, on my own terms. Because can I tell you a funny story is that my, in primary school, I had a Soto teacher for the first time in grade four and she was white. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And mm. my, my mom is a social teacher um, for in high school, for high schoolers. And I would go home and I would sometimes argue with her about something we did in class because I'm like, no, my teacher told me this is what it is. And my mom is a black Sisoto teacher. And I would tell her that 
my mm -hmm. white Sesotho teacher. And she's, a, and, and she's a Mosotho woman, by the way. And, and she's, she's a Mosotho woman. And she's a Mosotho woman. <laughs> so right. from then already, and like my teachers have been white women, you know, throughout all my life and a few sprinkles of white men here and there. But this, this has been the knowledge that has been constructed in me. And now I have mm -hmm. had to like take the responsibility on myself to educate myself on black culture, blackness, black expression through history. And I think that for me, that is what that is what the journey has been right now, you know. And and can I may, may I pose a question, right? Mm -hmm. Um from the caveat that you've just shared about your mom, um black Musutu woman who's also teaching Susutu, right? Have you and, and this is what I would ask the listeners as well, have you made the transition, whether, whether mom is a teacher or an accountant or a lawyer, whether she is Tosa, whether she is Zulu, whether she is Muperi, whether she is Chibenda, have we begun to see our parents as repositories of this knowledge, right? And what does, what would it mean, for instance, for Manager, to see his mother as a repository of black knowledge and black history that Tepo is necessarily yearning for. So that's the question I'm posing. I, I am trying to make that transition, but you know where I find a bit of difficulty is in, I find that this generation of parents, our parents, mm -hmm. put a lot of trust in the white system. <laughs> Um, which is why, like you said earlier, they sent us to these schools, you know, they sent us to white schools because they thought the only way we get to succeed is if we get taught by the white people. And a lot of that belief still exists in them today, you know, there's still, there's still this understanding that whiteness is the, will liberate us from poverty. And, and I find that to be the challenge that I still face. However, when we're not talking about things that are white centric but we're talking about things that she has to teach me about her upbringing about um how her father would be in the house how she grew up with her siblings and black culture from that sense i am very receptive to all of that knowledge but once we start talking about maybe career paths and um yeah career paths specifically or like learning and knowledge there is still some sort of Eurocentricism in, I find, our parents' generation's understanding or mm -hmm. beliefs, belief system. Because, mm -hmm. because for that generation, like the oppression, black, blackness was so oppressed at that time. And their parents would leave the township to go to work for white people in the suburbs. And then they saw this promised land in the suburbs, you know, which is mm -hmm. why um, with the birth of new black money, there was this migration into, into suburbia by black people. We never stayed in the townships and build our um, eight room, three bedroom house in the townships. We built them in the suburbs because we understood that as the promised land for black people. And an ideology, in an ideological sense, the white way of living and understanding and seeing the world still somewhat remains the promised land. And I find that is that is the disconnect between us as young people feeling somewhat disenfranchised by the born free promised narrative and our parents that are saying to us, you are free. You know how much we had to go through 
there's food in the fridge. Mm-hmm. You have a plasma TV in the mm-hmm. living room. Um, this is mm-hmm. it. This is the whiteness mm-hmm. that we all wanted. And then and, and I'm saying, but it's really not. <laughs> I find, <laughs> and, I find and, to be and, that and, disconnect. And, and, something, and something that's, I think, even more profound. Maybe it's the whiteness I don't want. Right? Yes. Um, so, so the reason why I asked that question of seeing our parents as repositories of knowledge is because my mom is an English teacher, as you well know. Mm-hmm. Um, so her subject methodologies in university were English and history. And I think it was the historical training, maybe, I don't know. Um, but when I grew up, for instance, my bedtime stories were in Mbwe the wrath of the ancestors. My bedtime stories were the lawsuit of the twins by S.E.K. Mkai, Mbwe of course, was written by S.E. Jordan. Um, you know, um, those were the kinds of texts my mother read to me, Nyembez's works and so forth and so on. And those are the texts, those are my bedtime stories. Those are the texts that we would sit around and discuss. And I found it so fascinating at the end of 2019 when I was home, because my research in terms of my PhD focuses quite exclusively on two black thinkers, Esike Mkai and Ukopa, William Wellington Ukopa. And I found it so interesting because we were reading I had mom read with me um, and, and, and to a certain extent for me because I missed those days as a kid when she used to read to me, for me. Um, and we were reading William Wellington Gopazimu the great debate about education because that's what I'm focusing on in my PhD. And I found it so profound. I really did, right? Because I can read a Sikosa. I can read this is Zulu and I write and produce knowledge as well in those languages of over and above English. And I found it so profound, the compositional styles and the meanings that are embedded in that knowledge, right? Um, which I think because of the way the world is shifting, we are really beginning to center those kinds of knowledges and those kinds of worlds even in the West. I find, for instance, that a lot of the work that I'm doing now, in South Africa, it gets taken up by those who can see the future. But when I present my work, for instance, and I taught last year at Karolinska Institute on the master's program, one of the finest universities in the world, uh, medical institutes in the world, uh, I taught and I I was drawing from this knowledge and the West is hungry for that knowledge because you know what, they've realized, they've come to a realization that the way that they have organized the world is very strange. And the way that they've organized the world is a way that is self-consuming and is unsustainable. And so I think in some respects, the shift that we're seeing globally mm. is one that is beginning to prize the knowledges that were in many very real ways, buried, erased, forgotten, and inferiorized, right? And so inferiorized. I, I really would... Yes. Mm, and, and I would really be interested to see how 
the accountant, the lawyer, the doctor today mm. views their mom, their dad as a repository of knowledge and begins to tap into that knowledge for their own advancement, career advancement, in terms of coming up with new ways of seeing old problems, but new ways because we're drawing from a knowledge system that was always marginalized. Um, and I think for me, that's where the process to go back, I suppose, to that question that you had asked me earlier, of how do we begin the process of self-loving? I think it's, it's really, really, because I think we always say, yes, we love our parents, but that expression of self-love comes in that reconstitution of those spaces where I was bored as a kid when mom used to read me Ujodans in Mumbiaminyanya. As an adult today, I am I shake, I have goosebumps when I read that text, whether I'm reading it in Phyllis Dandala's translation of the Wrath of the Ancestors or in Ukopa's initial penning as Ingumbuyeminyanya, I, I have goosebumps because I am reminded of how profoundly my mother loved me as a child to say, we have knowledge. Our people created systems of understanding the world. Our people were legitimate. And I think that shift, that transition can create something that revolutionizes the world. I, yeah. I, I appreciate your perspective. You're saying that as an academic who has been in multiple spaces, you have seen a thirst for alternative knowledge or different sources of knowledge from the Western knowledge that already exists. I don't know if I share the same optimistic view because I think yeah. I still see this perceived universality of Western knowledge. I mean, I wrote my honest thesis in psychology on the decolonization of the psychology curriculum. And what I found there was that a lot of what we were learning was still very much based on Eurocentric understanding of psychology. So I don't know, I feel it's always one chapter or module where we're mm -hmm. talking about the African perspective on human rights. You know, I'm going to study mm -hmm. human rights and then we're going to take one month off and to and study about African and human that's, rights and that's, or the African perspective. Itself, a month is a lot because in many universities <laughs> it's usually a week, yes, usually a lecture. You know? yeah. So I find that the, 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 the perceived universality of Western knowledge still remains the, the backdrop, the undertone that we, we, we are experiencing everything through. And then everyone just kind of visits the other, other perspectives, you know. Mm -hmm. on, on knowledge. And I, think, and I think that's where, because I'm seeing as well, as somebody who's located in the higher education space, I'm seeing a lot of us young people coming into those spaces, right? Becoming lecturers, becoming course coordinators, um, determining what goes into the module and what doesn't. And I think if we are still operating from that space of self-hate in very real ways, and it's engineered. I'm not even, I, personally, I'm, 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 I don't want to pussyfoot anymore because we've pussyfooted for a very long time and we're still <laughs> what stuck What does that even mean? <laughs> you what? 
You, <laughs> you pussy for tint. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only way I can think of it. That's the only way I can think of it, right? What do I um, mean? We, we, We've sort of we, we've been we've been walking on eggshells really, oh, okay. <laughs> for for a very very long time, and that and and if we're operating from a place of self hate, we're not going to see the radicality mm. of that alternative knowledge, of that different way of knowing, and I think Gen Z in many respects is pushing the millennials in that respect. Mm -hmm. Because Gen Z are saying, well, in 2015, you millennials demanded decolonization. You millennials demanded an Afrocentric worldview in your curriculum. We want it now. We need it now because it's you millennials who are now teaching us Gen Z, right? And I think we would be doing Generation Z a disservice if we continued to valorize a system that was engineered to inspire self-hate in black people. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's all the more dangerous, you know, it's easier for us to acquiesce to that kind of worldview. Say for instance, if I were in the United Kingdom, if I were in Germany, if I were in the United States, spaces by the way, that are drawing from the likes of Ondongela Masilela's work, spaces that are drawing from the likes of Ben Makubane, spaces that are drawing from the likes of Achma Feje, um, those Germany, UK, US. And then you come home to where those people were born, to where those people acquired and suckled from their mother's teats that particular notion of that knowledge that they created. And you find that knowledge still marginalized, eschewed inferiorized. And I think we are doing ourselves an incredible disservice because, as I say, I was reading and while I could understand in very many parts, 95% of the poem, when my mother began to analyze that poem with me as somebody who sat down and studied Isikosa as language, a different world opened up for me. Because so, so say, and this is why I'm saying that as, as the millennials, we have that, I suppose that very, very, it's, it's not a severed cord, right? The umbilical cord is still very much attached in that instance, whereby I can call up my mother and say, Ma, I'm teaching this, that and the other. I'm struggling with this and that and the other. And my mother will be like, well, here it, here's what it means. Here's an interpretation. You know what I mean? We still have, that connection. And I think that's why I asked the question of, I wonder what it would be like for us to transition, mm. to see our parents mm. as repositories of knowledge. And trust because they are. Knowledge. Yeah. Precisely. Precisely. Well, absolutely. I hear you. Absolutely. I hear you. Now, in, the, in, the very, in a world that is now headed in this globalization direction. We're already there, you know? We, we are realizing that there is this global culture emerging, right? And when mm -hmm. we look back at history, we've always existed in categories. There's been black mm -hmm. people, there's been white people, there's been Asian people, but within those kind of ethnic groups, they are cultural groups, you know? Mm -hmm. And now we're moving towards a world that is going to have one culture, 
we are we are exchanging all of these experiences to form one understanding of the human culture which is what globalization is becoming what does blackness or decolonization or appreciating expressing black lived experience mean for the bigger picture of globalization is is this an ongoing conversation that we're going to continue having even though we are establishing one culture I believe so, because as I say, you know, I, I, I've, I've spoken and taught in various spaces across the globe. I was in a Zoom room that, whose host was in Sri Lanka just last week. I presented work at Duke University also last year as well. And I think that this particular move that some of us are mounting a move that says, let's go back to our ways of knowing is a move that is being embraced and in fact is, sh is shining the light for so many. The Sri Lankans said to me last week that it is so fascinating and it is so inspiring to see that South, African, that South Africans and South Africa is having this kind of discussion where we are reading texts that were written in this Chosa in 1798. We are reading texts that were written in the Sizulu in 1900s, 1911, 1906, you know? Um, so, so and, 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 I, and I make this example precisely because this, this uniformed culture is what gives us Zoom, which allows me to be at Karolinska in Sweden, at, um, what is it, at Tübingen in Germany, at Duke University in the United States, as well as in Sri Lanka, you know, uh, in Southeast Asia. So we, we, have, we have all of this universal culture that is opening different people to different ways of knowing, who want different ways of knowing, who are embracing the knowledge that we are developing in very real ways. And so I do believe that it's important, and I'll use this, a last example on this particular question. Think about two weeks ago now, was it, when the king transitioned, the Zulu king. Mm -hmm. um, and think about how in that moment, the kingdom, the Zulu nation, really garnered not only a Zulu sense of quote-unquote, and I say Zulu quote-unquote sense of mourning, but there was a very shared experience where in whichever space you stepped into, there was black folk in the country acknowledged in very real ways mm. that a monarch has transitioned, you see. Um, and I do believe that in us fashioning that uniformed culture, there's still a very real sense of abeyance, a very real sense of respect that is given even as we come from different cultures heading to one global culture, um, there's a very real sense of pride of place and respect, as well as a yearning and a love for those traditions that are maybe somewhat perishing. Um, and I don't wanna say perishing because there are those of us who are actively invested in their sustained, in their sustained continuance in the world. Um, 
So, so, so long and short, yes, I do believe that it's important. It's a continuing conversation. It's a conversation, as I say, that, that can inaugurate a revolution, I believe. Really, there can be revolutionary shifts and changes that can happen when we look inside ourselves, when we see ourselves as walking repositories of knowledge, when we see our parents in that light, when we see our grandparents in that light, and there's the, and, and, and final thing, I, I know I said that was the final <laughs> thing on this point, but the final thing is to also just, I, I suppose, maybe highlight, think about the research projects that are happening in various disciplines, in political sciences, where Rhodes University just completed a master's dissertation on the rite and ritual of a Zulu girl transitioning into Zulu womanhood or what is it called? Uh, I believe it is Wemuliswa, Wendombazane, right? Um, and, and one of her examiners made the remark that she needs to deposit her master's dissertation into one of the national libraries in the country so that further generations could be able to draw from the work that she's done. If you think about what's happening in the discipline of psychology and specifically with the work that's happening at the University of Johannesburg, under the supervision of Dr. Sipot Lamini, who's focusing quite extensively on African psychological perspectives, right? Treating in many respects, um, psychosis from an African perspective. If you think about what we're doing in political science or political philosophy to be more exact, we are asking for re-imagination in my own PhD of what it means to articulate an a sense of national identity and belonging using the scholarship of William Wellington Gover and S.E.K. Mkari, you know? Um, so I do believe it's a continuing conversation and we are, there's, there's, there's work, there's work that's happening. And I just hope that all of us can find ways of disseminating our work such that it begins to inform and infuse culture, popular culture, as it were, yeah. I hear you. Very well put. We've come to the end of this episode. What my take-home message has been from you in terms of how do we awaken the African consciousness? And what I hear you saying is taking pride in our community, self-love, trusting our own knowledge, and to our allies, a willingness to listen authentically and compassionately. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair sum up? Absolutely. And again, thank you so much for just the opportunity to share these ideas and uh, really to, to try and, and direct people to say, because I think a lot of people as well don't know where to start with that process of self-love and how do I even begin? There's so much that's been done um, across time and space, fiction, literature, poetry, music. I think that's where we need to start looking uh, because our people did so much your Busim Shlongos of the world. Your Busim Shlongos of the world. Your Miriam Makebas of this world. Oliva Mtukudzi. You know, they've done so much. Your James Baldwins, your Maya Angelou's, your Tony Morris. We have what we need to inspire a radical sense of self-love. Yeah. Before we go, though, I have, I do this thing on the show where I have five daring questions to ask each guest. Oh, and then yeah. you just tell me Quick answers, one word, one sentence, whatever comes to mind to express your answer for each question. Sure. 
home. First question, what do you hope the world realizes sooner rather than later? Ooh, that we have to accommodate each other and love each other, reach across the aisle. Second question, what do you think we are so afraid of? What we don't know. Beautiful. Third question. What would blow your mind if it were to happen? Ooh. If there was to be a university in this country from every faculty and every department that would center an Afrocentric worldview, that would blow my mind. <laughs> that would be crazy. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right? And um, your next question, question four. What inspires you? I think what inspires me is what also fears me or what strikes the fear of God in me. And that's the fact that I don't want to die having lived a mediocre life. My friend, if you die tomorrow, you have accomplished. Thank and you. your last question, what are you grateful for right now? To be honest, I'm grateful for the friendships that I made many moons ago coming up in the world that still hold me so tenderly and so gently. Mr. Saseko Kumalo, thank you for sharing this space with me. Thank you, Tiffany. Where can the Daring community find your projects, any projects that you have worked on or find you on social media platforms if they wanna see what you're working on? They can find me on my Instagram and Twitter accounts, so Twitter handles, which are, at Prof Kumalo. And if somebody is really inspired, because I know this stuff can be really dense as well. If somebody's really inspired and feels like they have the stamina, um, most of my stuff is on Google Scholar and most of it as well is also open access. Um, my email address is on my academia.edu account. If people can't find stuff online, they can email me and I could very easily send them through the stuff. Yeah, that's where people can find me. I'll put all of that information in the description of this episode. And if you want to follow this podcast, you can follow it on Twitter at DaringGreatlyPC. You can also follow Daring Media ZA on Instagram for more engaging content. I love you for listening. Goodbye. This is a Daring Media production.